Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Inside the Board's Step 1 Study Smarter series. I'm Alex Carter, and I'll be your host today as we talk through some Step 1 level renal questions. In this episode, I'll discuss a mix of general strategies to tackle questions, as well as pack in as many pearls as possible to help you pick up those extra few points in your exam. So let's get to it. Starting with question one, as always, I will begin with an interrogatory before reading the entire question stem. The interrogatory. Which of the following complications would be most likely in this patient? A 70-year-old male presents to the hospital for a regular checkup. He has a history of chronic renal failure secondary to long-standing diabetes mellitus, hypertension, liver cirrhosis secondary to alcohol abuse disorder, and insomnia. Family history is insignificant. He is non-compliant with his medications. Which of the following complications would be most likely in this patient? A. Memory loss. B. Fragility fractures. C. Micrographia. Or D. Hyperthyroidism. So to review, we have an elderly gentleman with diabetes, renal failure, cirrhosis, alcohol abuse, hypertension, and insomnia who hasn't been taking his medications. So which of these complications would be most likely in this patient? The correct answer is B, fragility fractures. Now, part of the reason that I chose this question is that it illustrates one of the common and extremely frustrating aspects of standardized exams like step one, the concept of the quote, most correct unquote answer. The first distractor here is A, memory loss. This is, in fact, a very likely finding in this patient. He could have memory loss from dementia simply due to his age, or he could have severe uncontrolled alcoholism with an accompanying nutrient deficiency resulting in Korsakoff syndrome. For bonus points, what's that nutrient deficiency? That's right, vitamin B1 thiamine. So again here, if you answered A, you're not wrong, but you're also not the most right. So the next distractor here is C, micrographia. This is a finding that is fairly specific, especially on exams, to Parkinson's disease, and we have no other reason to suspect Parkinson's in this patient. The last distractor is D, hyperthyroidism. Now, hyperthyroidism has a number of etiologies, including Graves' disease, toxic multinodular goiter, or thyroiditis, but this patient has no history of autoimmune diseases, and we have no reason to think that he has an above-average risk for an acquired hyperthyroidism. And that leaves us with our correct answer, which again was B, fragility fractures. Why is this patient most likely to be suffering from fragility fractures? In this case, it all goes back to vitamin D. So let's take a minute to briefly review this beloved vitamin's metabolism and some of the pathologies that can result from inadequate intake. We obtain vitamin D from synthesis in the skin, in which case it's known as cholecalciferol, and from the diet, as it's known as ergocarciferol. Both of these forms are, at first, inactive. The inactive forms are hydroxylated in the liver and then travel to the kidneys where they receive a second hydroxyl group in the proximal tubules. And this forms the biologically active compound, which is known as calcitriol. As this name suggests, calcitriol is all about calcium homeostasis. Active vitamin D increases calcium absorption from the GI tract, the kidneys, and from the bones. 
Along with all this calcium, vitamin D has the same effects on phosphate. So to simplify, you can think of vitamin D as being the calcium and phosphate scavenger. While we're talking about vitamin D, I think it's also important to mention its close relationship with parathyroid hormone, or PTH. PTH is also crucial for calcium homeostasis, so it makes sense that when blood calcium levels are low, this is sensed by the parathyroid gland, which then produces more PTH. Now, PTH has a ton of effects around the body, which I won't go into all of them right now, but one of the important effects related to vitamin D is it actually increases the second step of vitamin D activation in the kidney. Again, that was the second hydroxylation that occurs in the proximal tubule of the kidney. Now, I like to think of vitamin D and PTH as teammates who have one disagreement. Vitamin D raises the body's phosphate levels, while PTH causes phosphate excretion, which is also why PTH is sometimes remembered by the mnemonic P-phosphate-T-trashing-H-hormone. And finally, this brings us back to our patient in the question. He has both liver disease and kidney disease, which means his ability to activate vitamin D is severely diminished, and therefore, he probably has low levels of vitamin D and subsequently low overall body calcium as well. Calcium is, as we know, very important in maintaining bone health. Therefore, the correct answer to the question again is B, fragility fractures, because this patient's bones are probably not properly mineralized. And to review, what is the name of the condition that results from long-standing vitamin D deficiency? Well, in adults, it's called osteomalacia, and that's characterized by demineralized bones, which are often referred to, especially on tests, as soft or weak, and thus prone to fracture. In children, long-standing vitamin D deficiency is referred to as rickets, and the only real difference is that the growth plate is affected in children, so you see more bony abnormalities, such as the classic rochitic rosary, which is just beating at the costochondral junction, or genuverum, which is known more colloquially as bow legs. And lastly, one final pearl for your exam is distinguishing between osteomalacia and the closely related condition osteoporosis. In osteoporosis, it's the density of the bone that is reduced, so there's less bone mass overall, which may or may not be accompanied by deficiency in minerals. In osteomalacia, which is again vitamin D deficiency, the bone mass is still there, the density is normal, but there's insufficient calcium and phosphate to be adequately mineralized. So if you take nothing else away from this podcast, I hope you're at least encouraged to go outside for a few minutes and use that sunlight to synthesize some vitamin D today, because it's pretty safe to say that if you're studying for step one, you're probably vitamin D deficient. All right, on to question two. The interrogatory, which of the following is most likely finding to be seen? And the question stem? A 42-year-old male with a history of alcohol use disorder is brought to the emergency department with lethargy. He arouses to pain, but is nonverbal. Vital signs show a temperature of 37.2 degrees Celsius. The pulse is 110, respiration is 22, blood pressure 120 over 70. The physical exam is normal. Laboratory investigations have been drawn. The first lab that returns is the urinalysis, or UA, that shows calcium oxalate crystals, but is otherwise clear. When the rest of the labs become available, which of the following is the most likely finding to be seen? A. Microcytic anemia. B. 
anion-gap metabolic acidosis, C, normal transaminases with high alkaline phosphate, or D, subdural hematoma with uncle herniation. In summary, we have an obtunded patient with alcohol use disorder presenting with normal vitals and calcium oxalate crystals on your analysis. What is the most likely other finding on labs? The correct answer is B, anion gap metabolic acidosis. So what is the source of his metabolic acidosis? Likely ethylene glycol intoxication. But before going more into this, let's start by rolling out the distractors. The first is A, microcytic anemia. Now in a patient with alcohol use disorder, we could see anemia, but it would more likely be macrocytic secondary to a nutrient deficiency, especially folic acid, which is vitamin B9, or it could be sideroblastic anemia from an inability to incorporate iron into that hemoglobin molecule. The next distractor is C, normal transaminases with elevated ALKFOS. Typically, when we see an elevated ALKFOS in isolation, we would think about some type of biliary obstruction, but ALKFOS is not specific to the liver, and an isolated ALKFOS elevation with normal liver enzymes could also be seen in conditions that affect the bones, such as Paget's disease or osteoporosis. It could also be seen in various malignancies or in chronic kidney disease. All of these are possible findings in our patient, but not the most likely answer of the choices given. And the final distractor is D, subdural hematoma with uncle herniation. A patient like this would definitely be obtunded, but we wouldn't expect a normal physical exam. We would expect to see signs of increased intracranial pressure, such as Cushing's triad of hypertension, bradycardia, and irregular breathing as well as possible cranial nerve deficits or a blown pupil on exam. And this brings us back to our correct answer. So what clued us in that this patient likely has an anion gap metabolic acidosis? Well, the first specific finding in the question was the presence of calcium oxalate crystals in the urine. You may recognize calcium oxalate as the most common source of kidney stones, but it's also the product of ethylene glycol metabolism. Ethylene glycol is a toxic alcohol that's most commonly found in antifreeze, but it can also be found in industrial solvents. It tastes sweet and then can therefore be associated with accidental ingestions, especially in children. It can also be used occasionally in suicide attempts or in patients seeking the intoxicating effects of ethanol who don't have access to it. Let's also use this as an opportunity to talk through the approach to a patient who presents with a condition like metabolic acidosis. What's the first step when a question provides a blood gas that demonstrates a pH in the acidotic range? Well, first, determine if it's respiratory or metabolic in origin. If it is metabolic, what's the next step? Determine if there's an ion gap or not. For review, that formula is the concentration of sodium minus the concentration of bicarb minus the concentration of chloride. So basically, you're looking at the positive ions in the blood, sodium, and subtracting the concentrations of the negative ions, bicarb and chloride. If that number comes out to 12 or less, you have a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis, which means that your acidosis is not being caused by the presence of some exogenous acid that's not normally in the blood. Most commonly, a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis results from the loss of bicarbonate, the major base in the blood, either through the GI tract or kidneys. And if that non-GAP metabolic acidosis is not due to diarrhea or some other cause of loss of bicarbonate, then it's probably due to a renal tubular acidosis, type 1, 2, or 4. But for the sake of time, I won't go into those in this podcast. 
Now, in the case of our patient, let's say that we do find a true metabolic acidosis with an elevated ion gap. What's the final step? We'll find the source of that ion gap. Sometimes it's obvious. Ketones if it's a patient in DKA or lactate if a patient is septic, but other times it's not as clear. There are lots of mnemonics to help remember the differential for an ion gap metabolic acidosis. I remember learning mud piles back in the day, but it seems that the most up-to-date mnemonic being taught now is called Goldmark. I'll let you look it up instead of reading through all of those letters here. And finally, if based on the history, you do suspect that a toxic alcohol ingestion is the cause of your metabolic acidosis, you can also calculate the osmolar gap, which you would expect to be elevated. However, I think for the purposes of step one, you should be able to determine if a toxic alcohol ingestion is the cause of a metabolic acidosis just based on the patient's history, such as the history in this question. Let's run through a couple rapid fire pearls before we move on to the next question. Methanol is another toxic alcohol that is often seen on exams. A patient will present with similar findings to ethylene glycol intoxication, but the unique finding to distinguish the two would be that methanol often presents with vision changes or blindness, while ethylene glycol tends to affect the kidneys more. Treatment of both of these conditions, however, is with fomepazole. Though you can actually use pure ethanol if fomepazole is not available, since the ethanol will be metabolized preferentially by the alcohol dehydrogenase enzyme, preventing that toxic alcohol's metabolites from accumulating in the kidneys. And as a last resort, if ethanol or fomepazole are not choices for treatment, you can always resort to dialysis to filter the toxic alcohols from the blood. And that's all I've got for toxic alcohol ingestions. Normally, now is where I would make some inappropriate joke about needing a drink after that long of a question review, but we keep it professional here at Inside the Boards, so let's just move right on to the next question. Changing gears a little bit for question three, let's do a little pharmacology. The interrogatory is, what is the mechanism of action of this drug? In our vignette, a 65-year-old male presents to the clinic with complaints of headache, fatigue, and blurring of vision for the past week. He has a past medical history of hypertension, congestive heart failure, hyperlipidemia, and type 2 diabetes, for which he is taking regular medications. On examination, his vitals are a blood pressure of 160 over 90, pulse of 90, respiratory rate of 18, and he's afebrile. He's switched to a new class of medication to help control his blood pressure, which is used as the first line of treatment in hypertension with patients with diabetes. What is the mechanism of action of this drug? A. Enhance natriuresis, lower blood pressure, and prevent remodeling of smooth muscle and cardiac myocytes. B. Enhance natriuresis, maintain blood pressure, and promote remodeling of smooth muscle and cardiac myocytes. C. Decrease natriuresis, maintain blood pressure, and promote remodeling of smooth muscle and cardiac myocytes. Or D. Decrease natriuresis, lower blood pressure, and prevent remodeling of smooth muscle and cardiac myocytes. And the correct answer here is A. Enhance natriuresis, lower blood pressure, and prevent the remodeling of smooth muscle and cardiac myocytes. So talking through our answer choices here, uh, we're first asked to decide whether this drug would enhance or decrease natriuresis. Now natriuresis just refers to promotion of urine excretion. So if we have a medication that is trying to control someone's high blood pressure, 
would we want to increase or decrease their urine output? We'd want to increase it. So this medication should enhance naturesis. The next distinguishing factor amongst the answer choices is whether this would maintain or lower blood pressure. I hope that at this point you would be choosing lower blood pressure, seeing as the goal here is to control the patient's blood pressure. We would not want to maintain it, we would want to lower it. And the third point of distinction is whether the medication would promote or prevent the remodeling of smooth muscle and cardiac myocytes. Now this one is not necessarily so intuitive, but take my word for it, you do not want remodeling of your cardiac myocytes. We're assuming that this patient's heart works at baseline, so we want a drug that would prevent any damage to the cardiac myocytes or the heart muscle. So this drug should prevent remodeling. And now instead of going through all of the distractors, since there's not a lot more information to be gleaned from them, let's jump right into a review of the drug that they're referring to in this question, which is the angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitor. These are definitely drugs that will come up on your test, and they'll also show up often in the clinic rewards. To recognize ACE inhibitors, look for the suffix pril, such as captopril, nalapril, lisinopril, or ramipril. How do they work? Well, this is one of those rare times in medicine that the name actually says it all. ACE inhibitors do just that. They inhibit angiotensin-converting enzyme, which is one of those do-it-all enzymes with effects on multiple organ systems. Since angiotensin 1 can't be activated to angiotensin 2, which is the active form, the whole renal angiotensin-aldosterone system, or the RAS system, is suppressed. This means that there's less aldosterone, so there's less retention of sodium and water, leading to more urine output, hence the natriuresis mentioned in our question. Also, ACE inhibitors reduce glomerular filtration rate, or GFR by constricting the efferent arteriole of the glomerulus. This often results in a small bump in the serum creatinine. Next, in the heart, angiotensin II normally promotes smooth muscle and cardiac myocyte remodeling. And lastly, angiotensin-converting enzyme, the target of ACE inhibitors, normally breaks down bradykinin. So, when you inhibit angiotensin-converting enzyme with an ACE inhibitor, we see more bradykinin in circulation, and because bradykinin is a vasodilator, this leads to further lowering of blood pressure. And while I always recommend learning mechanisms over mnemonics, I do find that there's a short mnemonic that comes in handy with ACE inhibitors, and that is ACE, A-C-E, where the A stands for ACE inhibitors, the C stands for constricts, and the E stands for efferent arterial. So if you remember that, that ACE inhibitors constrict the efferent arterial, you can remember that ACE inhibitors would then lower the GFR, thus causing some of the side effects that I'll get to in just a second. What populations of patients benefit the most from ACE inhibitors? The most beneficial population would likely be those with congestive heart failure. ACE inhibitors reduce afterload and preload, and they promote salt excretion by augmenting that renal blood flow and reducing aldosterone and antidiuretic hormone production. Apart from decreasing the afterload, ACE inhibitors also reduce that cardio or prevent the cardiac myocyte remodeling as we talked about earlier, and all of these results in less mortality in patients with congestive heart failure. Similar benefits are also seen in patients who have recently had a myocardial infarction or heart attack. The other major patient population to benefit from ACE inhibitors are those with diabetes or other chronic kidney diseases. They benefit from the reduction of that GFR 
which prevents worsening of proteinuria or loss of protein in the urine. It's very possible that the most important thing to know about ACE inhibitors for the purposes of your exam would be the side effects and their contraindications. Most common side effects of ACE inhibitors are a cough, angioedema, which involves swelling of the tongue or face, and sometimes even the GI tract, a rise in potassium, so you do want to avoid ACE inhibitors in patients who are at a high risk for hyperkalemia. You can also see a small bump in the creatinine due to that decreased GFR. ACE inhibitors are also teratogenic, so we definitely want to avoid them in all pregnant patients as they can cause lung hypoplasia, skeletal deformations, or kidney malformations in the fetus. And lastly, ACE inhibitors are contraindicated in patients with bilateral renal artery stenosis since these patients' kidneys are already receiving much less blood flow at baseline and they can't tolerate that extra loss of GFR that occurs after the starting an ACE inhibitor. And one final note, and this probably won't make it to the USMLE exam quite yet, but many nephrologists are now actually recommending instead of starting patients on ACE inhibitors, we start them instead on angiotensin receptor blockers, ARBs, which have very similar mechanisms of action, but tend to not have quite as serious side effect profiles as ACE inhibitors. In the past, when a patient had a reaction to an ACE inhibitor, they were often switched to an angiotensin receptor blocker. But we're finding now that ARBs have the same efficacy with a better set of profile, and they actually cost about the same. So why not just start with the drug that's less likely to have side effects if it's going to have the same efficacy anyway? But again, that's something for the hopefully near future. And that brings us to question four. With the interrogatory, what are his chances of having a female child with the same disorder as him, assuming that his wife is normal? And the question stem? A 30-year-old male presents to the clinic with pain in both flanks. The pain started a month back, is dull, and has been worsening for the past week. He denies fever, nausea, or vomiting. His past medical history is unremarkable. Family history, though, is positive for diverticulosis in his father, who died at the age of 50 due to a brain bleed. This patient does not use tobacco, alcohol, or illicit drugs. His temperature is within normal limits. His pulse is normal, blood pressure is a little elevated at 150 over 90, and his respiratory rate is normal at 16. An ultrasound reveals bilateral cystic changes in his kidneys. Urinalysis shows mild hematuria and proteinuria. What are his chances of having a female child with the same disorder as him, assuming that his wife is normal? A, 100%, B, 75%, C, 50%, or D, 25%? And the correct answer here is D, 25%. Now, I don't know about you, but when reading the question for the first time, I was very excited as soon as I recognized that this patient has polycystic kidney disease. But of course, the USMLEs are never that straightforward. So in this second order question, we have to also know how this condition is inherited. In autosomal dominant conditions, such as autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease, an infected individual is almost certainly going to be heterozygous for the condition and therefore has a 50% chance of passing the mutated allele to their offspring. So there's one in two chance of passing that affected allele on, and then there's a one in two chance of his offspring being a genetic female. Therefore, the correct answer is one in two times one in two, or one in four, which is 25%. So let's review a little bit about cystic kidney conditions 
starting with the most common autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease, or ADPKD, as it's often abbreviated. ADPKD results from a mutation in one of the polycystin genes, PKD1 or PKD2. How do these patients present both in the test and in real life? Well, the most common presenting symptom is hypertension, and this is definitely one of the conditions you should consider when you're presented with a relatively young person who is suddenly having high blood pressure on exam. Typically, we treat these patients with ACE inhibitors, as a throwback to our previous question as well. Flank pain is another common presentation, and this can be due to either pressure from the cysts and just a mass effect, or secondary to a cyst rupture, in which case the patient will likely have a fever as well and have significant blood in their urine. These patients will often suffer from more frequent UTIs than the regular population, and they're also at a slightly higher risk of kidney stones. A urinalysis in a patient with autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease will typically show microscopic hematuria, but otherwise will likely be pretty unremarkable, unless they also have a urinary tract infection or some other stone or something like that. Imaging, however, will almost always show bilaterally enlarged kidneys with multiple cysts, and these will continue to enlarge and grow throughout the patient's life. Some other commonly tested associations with ADPKD include mitral valve prolapse, cysts in the liver that are considered benign, and berry aneurysms, which is likely what happened to this patient's father who died of a brain bleed in his 50s. How do we distinguish between ADPKD and other renal cystic conditions that will be tested on our exam? Well, the other two big conditions to consider are the recessive version of this same condition and a condition called medullary cystic kidney disease, also known as medullary sponge kidney or autosomal dominant tubulo-interstitial kidney disease. So how do we distinguish amongst these three conditions? Well, first, consider the patient's age. If the vignette describes a fetus or a young child with some kidney problems, it's more likely referring to recessive polycystic kidney disease, which is a very severe condition, and many of the patients with recessive PKD don't even live to adulthood. Next, is the condition affecting one or both of the kidneys? Autosomal dominant PKD almost always affects both kidneys, while the medullary kidney disease might be only unilateral. And then lastly, look at the size of the kidneys. Autosomal dominant PKD is characterized by large kidneys, while the recessive version may present with large kidneys in a fetus, but those kidneys don't really mature much beyond that, and they actually will be small in a patient who does survive into childhood or early adulthood. And lastly, the medullary disease typically would present as small and fibrotic kidneys with very small cysts, as opposed to the dominant polycystic kidney disease with, again, large kidneys and large cysts. And then lastly, I guess, if all else fails, I do recommend being aware of just the epidemiology of conditions like this. Since autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease is far and away the most common of these three conditions, I think you can usually go with the statistics here and guess ADPKD on your test if you really blank out and have no other means of distinguishing between the three. And with that, we are on to our final question. With the interrogatory, what would be the diagnostic finding on electron microscopy in this patient? And the question stem? A 16-year-old female presents to the emergency department due to worsening headache and increased swelling in the bilateral lower extremities. She took antibiotics for an episode of sore throat a month ago. Pertinent positive findings include a blood pressure of 170 over 85, 
and acute renal failure with a creatinine of 4.4, up from her baseline of 0.7 just one month ago. Urinalysis revealed moderate blood, positive red blood cells, and 1-plus protein. What would be the diagnostic finding on electron microscopy in this patient? A. Mesangial humps B. Subepithelial humps C. Effacement of podocyte foot processes or D. Subendothelial humps Again, in summary, we have a young woman presenting with acute renal failure with significant blood and mild protein in her urine one month after having a sore throat which was treated with antibiotics. What condition is she suffering from? Well, hopefully at this point you're thinking about a nephritic syndrome, in particular, post-streptococcal glomerular nephritis. Therefore, we can reword the interrogatory as, what would be the diagnostic finding of post-streptococcal glomerular nephritis on electron microscopy? And the correct answer is B, subepithelial humps. Now let's go through the distractors here. A was mesangial humps. This would be characteristic of an IgA nephropathy. C is effacement of podocyte foot processes. This is referring to the findings in two different nephrotic syndromes, minimal change disease and focal segmental glomerulosclerosis. And finally, we have D, subendothelial humps. This is a finding that is most associated with diffuse proliferative glomerulonephritis, which we typically associate with autoimmune conditions, most often lupus. I'll now use this as an opportunity to review the approach to glomerular disease on your exam. The first step is identifying that the glomerulus is the source of the pathology. On your exam, the question writers will usually tip you off by providing a urinalysis that includes a specific finding such as red blood cell casts or significant protein, since the presence of these findings in the urine essentially suggests that the glomerulus is inappropriately leaky. Of course, I'm using air quotes here, which is probably not the most helpful for your listeners. But uh, regardless, after identifying a leaky glomerulus as the source of your pathology, the next step is to determine if the condition is nephritic or nephrotic. Generally, nephrotic syndromes result from damage to podocytes, causing extra leakage of protein through the glomerulus into the urine. As a result, patients will typically have at least 3-plus protein on urinalysis. Labs will show low albumin because that's a major protein in the blood that's being leaked out. And they'll also likely show hyperlipidemia, specifically of LDL and triglycerides, because the clearance of these molecules is reduced in patients with nephrotic syndrome. Some studies have also shown that synthesis of triglycerides and other cholesterol molecules are increased in nephrotic syndrome as a means of compensation for the loss of oncotic pressure from all that lost protein as well. Clinically, the patient might present with some edema, which would be seen in the face, or more commonly in peripheral tissues, such as the feet and traveling up into the shins. And finally, nephrotic syndromes are considered a hypercoagulable state due mostly to loss of anticoagulant proteins such as antithrombin, protein C, and protein S in the urine. In contrast, nephritic syndromes, that's nephritic with an I, syndromes involve damage to the glomerular basement membrane itself. So these patients will have microscopic or sometimes even macroscopic hematuria, that's blood in the urine, and their urinalysis will typically show red blood cell casts, some mild protein, 
like one plus or two plus as opposed to that three plus or four plus that you see in nephrotic syndromes. And you'll also see signs of acute kidney injury with an increased BUN and creatinine. Clinically, these patients will almost certainly be hypertensive and they may or may not have the edema that is so characteristic of nephrotic syndromes. Often, these patients will also describe oliguria or low urine output leading up to their presentation as well. Since this podcast will hopefully be less than 12 hours long, I'll forgo reviewing all of the glomerulonephritides and their characteristic findings on light microscopy, electron microscopy, and immunofluorescence. But suffice it to say that this is definitely material that will be tested, so I highly recommend committing at least a few of the unique findings of each condition to memory. Today, though, I will quickly review some of the most specific findings of the nephritic syndrome, post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis, that you might see on your exam. Post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis, which I'm going to refer to as PSGN from this point forward to save my tongue, is caused by an inflammatory response after a streptococcus infection, which most commonly occurs in the throat as strep pharyngitis or strep throat, or the skin as impetigo or cellulitis. The pathophysiology involves the deposition of immune complexes, mostly composed of complement, which makes this a type 3 hypersensitivity reaction, and that deposition occurs in the glomerulus. Some of the other glomerulonephritides will involve antibody deposition in the glomerulus, but that would be a type 2 hypersensitivity reaction, and this is a nice way that the test might try to trick you up. Overall, this condition is more common in children, especially in developing nations where children might not have received treatment for their initial strep infection. In most Western nations, it's seen often in immunocompromised adults. So consider that when you're reading your question stem as well and thinking about PSGN as an answer. The question stem will also almost certainly emphasize that the patient has recently had an infection and is now presenting with new onset hypertension, maybe after noticing blood in their urine. One of the most important things to know for the exam is how to distinguish PSGN from another very similar condition, and that is IgA nephropathy. Fortunately, there are a few clear ways to distinguish between these two. One is to look at the time course. Typically, PSGN will occur weeks to a month after the initial infection, while IgA nephropathy occurs within days to maybe a week after the infection. Second, look at the symptoms of the original infection. Did the patient have a sore throat or skin infection? Think PSGN. Did they have a GI illness or a UTI? Think IgA nephropathy. And lastly, while both conditions involve immune complexes, in PSGN, the complexes are composed of complement, so you'd expect that the complement levels in the patient's blood would be low, since all that complement is being consumed and deposited in the glomerulus. While in IgA nephropathy, it's IgA, which is an antibody, that is mostly composing those immune complexes that are being deposited. So the blood complement levels in IgA nephropathy would actually be normal. Now finally, I'll move away from the kidney for just one second and mention a final pearl related to strep infections. What antibiotic is used for the treatment of primary strep infections? Correct, it is penicillin. For the purposes of the exam, at least, if you treat a patient with penicillin during their initial infection, this will prevent the other major post-strep infection complication, which is rheumatic heart disease. 
Now, in contrast, even treating that patient during their initial infection with penicillin will not prevent PSGN from occurring. And that's all I have for today's episode. Although I'm fortunately not being graded by a preceptor for my performance, I'd still really appreciate feedback. So if you have any thoughts about today's episode, do you want more questions with less review, more review with fewer questions, more time focusing on strategies for question breakdown, more or less bad jokes, please let me know. I can be reached at alexitbfeedback at gmail.com. Thank you all for listening today and tune in again soon for part two of this step one renal review series.